Hi, this is Delegate Steve Ahrens, District 36, representing Kent, Queen Anne, Cecil, and Caroline Connies, and you're listening to the Maryland Association of the Connies podcast. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canelli here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, excited for today's podcast. We have a really good guest. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited too. I mean, we spent uh, we spent a full episode of our podcast a few weeks ago talking about Mako's legislative initiatives. We tried to do that sort of as a preview for the 2023 legislative session, and we did. I think a fairly quick run through of the top issues that our legislative committee has adopted as our big issues for next year. And in talking through that, I think you you and I felt like the one area that was worth some more conversation was what are we going to do about body cameras, body worn cameras for law enforcement officers and potentially other uh, personnel in your local government. This is an emerging trend. It's happening in a number of places in Maryland already. It's on its way everywhere. And getting the laws sorted out correctly for that new technology is an interesting and timely topic for legislative action. We wanted to get more deep into that topic. And so that's our plan today is let's dig in a little more. Yeah, certainly this can get pretty technical, but fortunately, we have one of the best in the business to help walk us through the issue in a way that we all can understand, because again, it can get weedy. And we're thrilled to have with us Hillary Rooley. Hillary is the chief solicitor at the Baltimore City Law Department. Hillary, thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So so I guess, I mean, maybe the, the first place to start off is the city solicitor's office um, is a little different title than most folks who live in county governments. Most of the counties have uh, an office of law and a county attorney. The, the city solicitor has an analogous role, but can you, for our listeners' benefit, can you first explain what does the city solicitor's office do on behalf of the city of Baltimore and its residents? Yeah, that's a great question. Solicitor isn't something you hear very much these <laughs> days. It's pretty much old English um, Obviously, in the English legal system, you have barristers and solicitors, and solicitors were more the advice givers. So, um, harken back the many, many years ago when the city was formed, um, in still colonial times, that was sort of the go-to word for legal advice. And it's essentially what a county law office will do, give legal advice. And of course, now, also, lawyers in our office do what a barrister would do. They do litigation work as well. I think you're joined by Har- or, excuse me, uh, Howard County, I think, is the only other jurisdiction in Maryland that has a solicitor as opposed to a county attorney, but basically the same function. So it's the chief lawyer on behalf of the local government. Got it. Right. And so, you know, there is the city solicitor. It's uh, appointed. It's not elected like the AG. And um, and it's basically, you know, there's chief solicitors under him. Um, more experienced lawyers, essentially, and then assistant solicitors, more, you know, new lawyers. Right. So in your role there, you certainly wear a lot of hats. So tell us what areas you focus on professionally in your time in the department and, you know, what what your focus is moving forward. Right. Sure. So in 
the city solicitor's office, there's lots of different departments. There's litigation, as I mentioned. There's a contracts group. There's a real real estate, real property group of attorneys, others that do sort of more business transactions and the group I'm in, which is advice and counsel. And so we kind of get more the advice questions. So in my particular role as a, as a chief solicitor there, I've been there for maybe, what, almost 15 years now. We answered questions from city entities, um, legal questions. Uh, we also review city council bills that need legal review. And we review General Assembly bills when the General Assembly is in session that our clients asked us to take a look at. And, and sometimes I'll obviously testify in the General Assembly about a particular bill, usually on the Public Information Act, as you know, and often with MACO. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also supervise a full-time attorney who is dedicated to responding to Public Information Act requests. And among other lawyers in our office, certainly, you know, we consult as we're sort of the, the go-to entity to discuss the form and structure of city government. Right. So so I guess it, it might not be obvious to all of our listeners, even though you know this podcast veers in and out of county government and local government issues, but the breadth of things that a full-service local government is responsible for. Like you mentioned, like all the different contracts with with vendors and, and other folks who interact with the city government. Um that that you have a, a section on real estate because you're owners of so much property, and I'm, I'm sure there are other things that that come up in land records or whatnot. Uh, that there is a, a pretty major role for a law office uh, representing and guiding the, the the sort of leaders and policymakers in in city government. But it, it's the last piece you got to is really the hook that that we wanted to talk about today. You mentioned the Public Information Act. So so that's what we want to speak about a little bit today. Um, I think a lot of our, our listeners are probably maybe more familiar with the term Freedom of Information Act. We, you know, you see that on television or you may hear about that at the federal level with documents and, and federal agencies and so forth. And a number of states have adopted state-level Freedom of Information Acts Maryland has done basically the same thing, but in our inestimable style, we have uh, given it a different name in Maryland. So uh, the name of our Freedom of Information Act is the Public Information Act, but the principle is basically the same, right? The Public Information Act basically says the government is a custodian of data and information and documents, but it effectively belongs to the public. So for the most part, if the public asks for those things, we should share them and provide them. But then there are some caveats and so forth. Is that more or less how the PIA works in Maryland? Yeah, essentially every state has one. Um, some of them call them, you know, some version of FOIA. I think New York is FOIL, you know, Freedom of Information Law. So these are just acronyms for essentially the same yeah. thing. You know, yeah. it's giving the public access to government records. And in 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 Maryland's PIA, can can you walk us through a little bit about so so you you've been a custodian of documents and you said you you supervise someone who is actively um, sort of governing PIA requests and responding to them and so forth. So can you give us a little bit of flavor of what that duty is as a custodian of public documents, generally yeah. speaking? Sure, and let me be clear: we in the law department, we're the lawyer for the custodian. Certainly the law department is the custodian of its own records. 
um, you know, my notes, you know, our trial briefs, our deeds, our drafts. Of course, we are um, custodian of that. But I think it's important to remember every single record custodian has the duties under this law. And most governments are composed of many record custodians. So, for Mm -hmm. example, in Baltimore City, the law department is a custodian. The mayor's office is a custodian. You know, the zoning board is a custodian. The public works department is a custodian. And that's important. So while I have a client called the mayor and city council of Baltimore, essentially Baltimore city government, it's made up of multiple record custodians. And under this law, each record custodian is required to respond to requests to view its records. And so there are many times to be clear that records are requested and it's really not a big deal. You know, could you please Mm -hmm. send me the map to city hall? Sure. You know, we put that stuff online. Mm -hmm. Um, So that kind of thing, anytime you're asking for a government record, you're essentially using the public information act because that's what allows the public access to those records. And and so I guess as a practical matter, you know, someone who lives in Baltimore and is, Curious how the city made a decision to why why are you tearing up this street right now? What went into that? What were the working documents that made you decide you're going to do, you know, repave or resurface this particular roadway? It's an inconvenience to me and my drive. I want to know how you reach that conclusion. They could approach, I guess, you know, the, the, the city's Department of Public Works and say, I'd like to see the work papers that went behind that decision or things of that nature. Right? This is this is the small ball kind of stuff that does happen under the PIA. People can say, I want to see how you con- how you concluded to do such a thing. Is that fair? Absolutely. And I think, you know, you've hit on what the PIA and all these state and the federal law is supposed to do. It's supposed to give the public access to the operations of government. And so that is generally the guidepost when looking at what gets released and what doesn't. If it's about how the government operates, if it's about how your elected officials or the government employees make decisions, that's usually what these laws seek to release to the public. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and as I'm sure we'll get into, you know, exemptions are usually there to protect things that really aren't about government operation, things like someone's private, personal, financial or medical information. So, um, you know, the PIA law in Maryland and, of course, all of them, they're designed to allow the public to have access to, you know, the workings of the government. What does the government do? Um, But I think it's important to note also that it is a statute giving access to records. It doesn't entitle people to have some sort of give and take or the press an interview or a deposition. It doesn't entitle someone answers to questions. Mm -hmm. Um, It just entitles people to access to the documents that exist. And that's both paper documents as well as electronic documents, you know, emails, for example. Yeah. And I I recall we had to, touch up some elements of the the Public Information Act, I don't know, this may have been a decade or so ago, 
Um, the idea of releasing electronic documents to people when they request it. I mean, I'd much rather have a sortable Excel table uh, rather than a, a 35 page printout of data. And if you've got it in electronic format, we're, we're obliged to provide it that way. But we don't necessarily have to share things like the metadata behind the, the assembly of the document, other stuff like that. So, I mean, there's precedent for sort of adjusting these laws to accommodate new technology. And let's put a pin in that because that's sort of the issue where we think we are right now. I do want to follow up on one thing you did mention, though, that um, there are exceptions. So we have a rule that more or less says public information belongs to the public. The custodians should provide it. But then you got into there are exceptions to that rule. And I, I think um, it's it's worth like a second or two to explain that. So if if I walk in the door in Baltimore City and say, I want to know about the insurance company that the city works with to provide health insurance benefits for city employees, that's a public document for the most part. But if along the way there might be information about, well, we did a study on uh, usage of different doctors or physicians or specialists by city employees, and we might have internal data that shows specific employees who use specific doctors or have specific conditions. That's exactly the kind of information that wisely, I think, Maryland's law says you don't reveal that to the public, that this particular employee um, is on kidney dialysis and is going for regular treatment, A, B, and C. That might have been an incidence study that the city might have done for some reason for cost management, but that's not the kind of thing that you would share to the public and identify a person. Is that That's the kind of thing we're talking about with exceptions, right? It is, and I think you, you pick out an easily accessible exception here because, as I mentioned with the guidepost, there's nothing you learn about government operations by knowing about a particular employee's kidney issue. And that's really the difference. We're not trying to say that if you work for the government, all your medical and financial information is now disclosable to the public. Um, that's not what this is about. The law is designed to look behind really government operations. If there's documentation about how the government made a choice, what the government spends, what it purchases, why, you know, even communications between government officials about government business, that's the kind of thing we want to disclose. Um, the exemptions are the General Assembly, uh, and then, of course, in every state, they also have them. Essentially, the legislature's putting a, a line down and saying, these are the kinds of things we don't want the public to see, mostly because they have nothing to do with government operation. Right. And I think that's the perfect lead up. Um, we know that, you know, how Maryland's law works generally. I think you, you've laid that out pretty well. And I think we've set the table for the discussion that we really want to have today, which is about body worn cameras and specifically body worn camera footage as it pertains to the Public Information Act. So, Hillary, we know that body-worn cameras offer a substantial advance in promoting accountability and safety in law enforcement for the public and for police officers. There's no doubt about that. And we also know that many states have separate laws for dealing with the release of body-worn camera footage. But for years, Maryland has struggled and it has failed to enact a clear set of guidelines for releasing this footage under the state's Public Information Act. So for now, 
All the footage that you have recorded on body cameras is stored somewhere, and it sits there as a public document. Is that correct, Hillary? That's essentially what's happening right now. And we don't have a separate set of laws. You know, we have we have a law that says, hey, on a paper document, you have to redact certain things and whatnot. But we've never really gotten to the point where, hey, body cameras are different and we need to have a clear set of guidelines separate from traditional Public Information Act laws. To, to really govern the release here and to, to tell our custodians what they should be doing and really clearly define what should be released and what shouldn't be. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, when we talk about exemptions from release, um, we're talking about a legislature in Maryland, of course, General Assembly coming in and saying, this is fair game. We want the public to view this. And this is something we don't want the public to see. And I think this makes a lot of sense if you actually understand the way that the Public Information Act is laid out, it is laid out in in, um, you know, in Title four of the General Provisions Article of the Maryland Code. But it's divided into parts. Mm-hmm. And part one is just your sort of your background. But part two, three and four talk. Well, five as well. Two through five talk about these exemptions. What kind of records can you not see? Because the default is to see them. And this, again, is both paper and electronic. And the way that this law is written, as most of them are, talk about really kind of paper. Part two is, you know, which whole records can't go out. Part three, what information in some records are not allowed out. And that's the majority of the exceptions, about 30 of them. And then part four is well, what kind of information does the government have the option to let out or not? And the fifth is is sort of temporary denials, which really is not relevant to this discussion. But when you look at the whole structure of the law, it was created for the concept of having a record and information in that record. Mm -hmm. And so it can grow and change. Email is an example. But when you start to get to video, it becomes really difficult to think of a whole video as a record and then information in the video is like, what are you seeing? Little, um, you know, frame by frame, picture by picture, even within a still photograph. What part of that photograph can be released and what part has to be blurred out? It gets to be challenging, as you were indicating. Yeah, I mean, you can you can think this through already. Uh, I mean, I, I think we think of public records as like pieces of paper in a manila envelope in a, in a file folder someplace, right? Like the old school public record. And people are familiar with the idea that you might get something from the government and there's sort of the black magic marker over names of specific people or other things like that. There, you know, someone went through that document and you can read word by word and say, well, this particular piece of that letter should be redacted, it's not relevant, or it's not appropriate to be sent to the public. It's one of those things in the sections of the federal FOIA or the state PIA. It's it's in those sections of law that say, you know, generally release stuff, but not this kind of thing. So the magic marker on a letter to, to cover out, you know, one sentence or one paragraph or whatever is what we're familiar with. But the idea of a public record meaning three hours of video footage from a body-worn camera. Um, it's just a whole, like it's, I don't know, it's an exponentially uh, larger task to look through that and, and make judgments about what information is contained therein, right? Well, yeah, and I think you hit the, the nail on its head. 
Um, the way that the redactions are set up, there are many, many mandatory redactions. So, for example, the one that, you know, social security numbers in certain instances or um, somebody's bank, you know, bank account number, um, as well as medical information. You know, you think about a record about, say, a dog bite. Um, someone calls into the city's 311 system and says, I've been bit by my neighbor's dog. And I'm bleeding and I, you know, I'm uncomfortable and this is whatever. When you look at a printout of that record, it's our job as lawyers to note, okay, Section 4329 of the Public Information Act says I can't let out medical information. So I'm going to redact that part that talks about the bleeding that occurred from the dog Mm -hmm. bite because that's somebody's Mm -hmm. medical information. But I could let out the rest. Well, think now about the audio call. When you are calling into 311, there's an audio tape. That, too, is a government record. And now I've got to have the software and the ability to go through and listen to that whole recording. And every time the person mentions their medical or physical condition, I've got to find a way to, like, beep it out or redact it out. Mm. And the same is true with body camera. And so it just becomes very challenging from a tool perspective to implement that. Um, But I'll say also. One of the biggest challenges is that many things are listed in the law that are required redactions. There is no debate that I have to take that medical information out. I don't have a choice. I don't have an option. Right. The, you know, the person bit by the dog can't say, no, 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 no. I can't wait for people to know how bad my injury is. You government, you release that publicly. I don't have an option. There's no waiver. There's no consent. If they want to get a copy of their own call and release it themselves, they can't. But the government has no choice. Um, But there's a whole thing, uh, a whole part of the PIA where the government has the option to decide what to release. And that may seem counterintuitive, but that's where the General Assembly is saying to the government, you have to look at what the release of this information would do and whether that's in the public interest. And so not only do you have the technological challenge of redacting things that must be removed, you also have the mental challenge of deciding what's going to happen if I release this. And both of those come sort of crashing together when you talk about body cameras, because both of those are difficult. Right. And I mean, so so I know it's fair to say that Maryland's BIA law, again, all envisioned for paper documents, similar media. It was never designed to address the practical, technical and privacy challenges that come with body worn cameras. And Hillary, I think something that you just said, you know, giving giving custodians, giving local governments sort of that 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 option of whether or not to release something that's not enumerated in law that needs to be redacted. I mean, typically at MAKO, we're all about flexibility and we want more flexibility locally to, to govern and, and we want to have the option and, and, you know, one size does not fit all. And we, we typically like that. But I think with body cameras, you're right. All that kind of comes crashing in with the technology, with the mental aspect of, hey, what do we do here? Should this be released? Is it in the public interest? I think that in some instances, it's fair to say, I think that, you know, we would like a little bit more guidance and, and clarity on, hey, this is also a mandatory denial, right? Well, you can't release this. You can't, you have to redact that. And maybe we don't need so much leeway to make those decisions. And again, it's weird to say that at MAKO, again, we're all about flexibility and we're all about having that, 
that option. And, and, and we think that's the best way to govern. One size does not fit all. But in some instances like this one, I think it becomes really difficult to make those decisions on the fly. And then you're ultimately accountable for those decisions, too. Right, Hillary? Yeah. I mean, I think you've raised some really good points to the latter. Absolutely. In Maryland, the government employee, not just the government itself, but the actual employee and in fact, any vendor, anyone um, is liable for disclosing information that they weren't allowed to disclose, but also liable for not disclosing information they should disclose. Many other states don't have that kind of liability and the liability is not just monetary. There can be criminal misdemeanor charges. So we take this subject very seriously when we're looking at how to implement the law. Um, you know, as I mentioned, many record custodians all coming to the law department for advice when needed. And it's, you know, my job as a lawyer and certainly one supervising another lawyer to make sure we're redacting out the things that we're not allowed to disclose. Medical, psychological information, I've mentioned home address and phone number of employees or certain social security number information. You know, there's there's whole records we can't let out if we were to have them. You know, everything from certain MVA records to certain um, fire gun, firearm and handgun records. You know, there's all these mandatory non-disclosures. And that can be tedious, but it's fairly straightforward. The loss gives the government no choice. And and it's because as a society, we've decided, you know, the point of a government records request is is to learn about the government, not to know about someone's personal medical financial information. But that isn't the sum total. And the permissible denials in part four of the PIA law talk about allowing the government to withhold information that would not be in the public interest if released. Things like advice from uh, a lawyer to a client. You know, that might be something that's really worth protecting now. But if you're looking to see, you know, what legal advice did William Donald Schaefer get 30 years ago, perhaps that's, you know, of much greater historic value. And there's there's no reason not to withhold it. So the circumstances can come into play. And for body worn cameras, we're in a world of investigatory record exemption. And basically, it gives the government a lot of leeway to determine when a record about a law enforcement investigation can be disclosed and when it can't be. And in in Maryland, some of the enumerated times where you really should look at it is, are you compromising a you know confidential witness or source? Are you revealing publicly a technique that the law enforcement uh, community really needs to keep secret? You know, um, are you putting someone's life in jeopardy? Are you compromising the investigation. And so that's what the government disclosure um, paradigm is. As you said, we always recognize that one size doesn't fit all. And so that's sort of the whole purpose of those permissible denials. It's not about protecting the government from disclosure of things that might not look good. It's literally about giving flexibility. When is it not in the public interest to disclose those things? And you can understand, you know, it's not in the public interest to disclose the, you know, suspect that you haven't yet arrested. You know, you don't want to tip the public or the right. suspect off. I mean, that kind of thing is the flexibility we're talking about. It's 
When is it not in the public's interest? Yeah, no, just one thing I wanted to, to, to get back to before we get too far away. And I know we're going to get into all these nuances, but, you know, in, in Maryland, and you said under Maryland law, the individual, the custodian who decides, who makes that decision is ultimately liable, not just the government. And you mentioned in other states, that's not the way it is. I'm interested to know why you think that is the case in Maryland. And is there a benefit to it um, from, from your perspective to hold the actual custodian, the individual who, does, who made that decision ultimately liable and not just the government that, that they represent and they work for? Is there a benefit to you to, to do it that way? And, and why have other states decided to, to not do it that way? I think other states have decided not to do it that way because it's really almost draconian when it comes to the reality that people are generally trying to do their best work, but they may mess up. Um, they may, you know, uh, accidentally forget to redact somebody's medical information. They meant to. There was sort of no ill intent, but they're going along redacting and they and they miss it. So hmm. I think that it's not really the kind of thing that that most states want to punish and certainly not punish criminally. I can't speak to why Maryland's had it. It's certainly been in there for decades. Um, it doesn't really heighten my review as a lawyer because obviously I'm a member of the bar and, and, and certainly want to continue to have my license. So um, it's not exacting for me any higher scrutiny. Um, but uh, yeah, and it hasn't, to my knowledge, been used all that frequently in Maryland, although it has. Um, but I think it's important to understand that while that still exists, most government employees are very leery of making a mistake. And I do think that it results in very slow and very methodical review by conscientious employees because that is lingering out there. They don't right. want they don't want to get, um, you know, don't want to get in trouble. Sure. And, and, and Maryland's law being structured that way. I mean, it's technical. You default to sharing. Then there are several areas where you are not supposed to provide the record. Um, and the state asks the custodians effectively, you need to bat a thousand here. Um, so that's, I mean, that's, so that's a pretty high bar. I, I, I agree with you. I, I want to follow up now and talk about kind of the nuts and bolts here because it's body worn cameras are the issue of the moment. And we've talked a little bit about how, you know, the, the piece of paper has a name or a social security number or health information or something. And you redact it with the old magic marker. You talked about an audio file where there's sort of a, a linear conversation. You might have to beep out words or eliminate certain words or whatnot. But that's that's fairly, I don't know, when you, you know, linear information that you can evaluate what's in it a lot more readily than you can with footage from a body camera. So uh, to me, that's that's where this whole law is missing a pivot. And um, this, this trend is underway. We know, you know, lot, lots of officers in Maryland in, that are employed by local governments, including the city of Baltimore, um, you know, lots of places are using body cameras already. And we've been working with a coalition of advocates uh, to try and bring this sort of bring some balance into these laws. It's tricky to, you you run the risk of sounding like you're anti-transparency, but I think it, in the to try and illustrate that, let's walk through um, 
the kind of stuff that can be in the footage on cameras. An officer goes into somebody's home and is looking around or is responding to a domestic violence call, that sort of thing. Uh, so now uh, the the victim's face, maybe children's face, objects that are around somebody's home, all these things are captured in the background of body camera footage in addition to just what this person did or what this person said or, you know, what the suspect, you know, did and, and, and so forth. Um, the things we think of as the centerpiece of the camera footage, there's just a lot that can be there as ancillary stuff being picked up by a video camera. They're, they're just an all-seeing eye, right? Well, yeah, and I think you've highlighted the difference between a uh, police report where you're literally reporting on the information that's uh, important to the police. You know, who was there? What happened? You know, the police report's not going to say, oh, and by the way, turns out all of the furniture in that house is really ugly. Just saying, you know, there's no background. There's no tableau. It's sort of the classic just the facts. But more than sort of the, quote, embarrassment of having a camera in your home, looking at your stuff in the background, like you mentioned, children there. Um, also, domestic violence, certainly, you could have right in view a person who's injured, a person who is, you know, physically or mentally scarred, um, a person who's suffered trauma or, you know, or all sorts of things. And so when you're talking about police records on paper and you look at the investigatory exception exemption that the PIA provides, it's a little bit easier. When you look mm-hmm. at the list of things that you have that you may redact, you know, is letting this out going to inf- interfere with the law enforcement proceeding? You know, essentially, has has the arrest right. been made yet or not? You know, is it going to deprive someone of a right to a fair trial? You know, is it going to disclose a source? You can sort of go through if it says, by the way, we got this tip from so and so. That's an easy redaction. Mm-hmm. It's much harder on a video to know, OK, is the guy in the background that that tipster we always use? Should I be blurring his face out? What do I do? Um, But even those sort of technically difficult things to do because it's video and not paper are kind of massively overshadowed by something you were hinting at when you were discussing, you know, the unwarranted invasion of personal privacy. That is sort of classically it. Section 4, 351B3 of the PIA basically says the government may choose not to disclose a part of a record because it constitutes an unwarranted invasion of personal privacy. That's something you're just not getting in a police record. You're literally getting only the stuff that's relevant Um, in a body camera worn, you know, footage. You're seeing the whole tableau, the whole background, all sorts of information you would never get in a paper record. And it's incumbent upon us, like you said, to make that distinction. And I think that is probably the biggest area where guidance from the legislature would be very helpful. What kind of things that we might capture on body camera are we all as a society deciding is really too much of an invasion of someone's privacy? And what is it that we really want to see? I mean, essentially, can you police the police by looking at body camera? Absolutely. But you don't necessarily need to know what's in someone's house or in the background to do that. 
And I think that's really the guidance that's missing in Maryland and that many states are looking to shore up. Right. And, you know, Hillary, I think we've gone through a lot of the things that I think we all agree should not, never be released to the public. So kids, sensitive information, you know, graphic images, anything like that. Officers also record private conversations. You know, that, that stuff should not be released to the public. It, it's of no benefit. But then you get into the gray area, I think, what you're talking about. Let's say, you know, someone goes to Michael's house and Michael has five Picassos on the wall, right? Like now somebody has to sit there as a custodian and think, wait a second, if I release this, people are going to know that he has really, really valuable artwork. And is that something that I should be releasing and, and telling people like go to this guy's house and steal these Picassos? Like that's the kind of gray area I think where there is flexibility, but then you as a custodian or any custodian has to make that decision. You know, is this worth it? Is this going to result in his house being broken into? Do people need to know that he has an art collection like this? So it, these are the gray areas, right? Where we, we have to make tough decisions. And, and I think guidance from the general assembly is warranted, but there are a lot of those instances, Hillary, where somebody has to make Make a really tough call and you can't look at the law and you don't have, you know, nuts and bolts wise, a clear, clear law about what can you release? Like there's nothing in the law that says, hey, don't release a, a priceless art collection. Don't show that to the public. You have to make that call. Well, right. Absolutely. And, you know, it's the way the wording in the statute is, is unwarranted. OK, well, what's warranted right. in this situation? And and. You know, again, it may make a lot of sense to have government flexibility when what I'm redacting is a confidential source or there's no arrest yet. I mean, that's the kind of flexibility that the government's always had and and wants to preserve. But we're seeing now with body cameras across the country that every state is facing this same world of picking up on a government record, a bunch of information about things we would never have written down. What is it that we as a society believe is unwarranted as an invasion of privacy and what shouldn't be disclosed? And that's really the guidance I think people are seeking. And it's really due to the fact that this is a dynamic record, really doesn't look or quack at all like it's paper counterpart. Right. So so I, I feel like the, the pictures coming in clearer focus for our listeners who have who have come with us this far um now i think you see why this is so vexing um you know kevin and i tried to do our like six minute treatment of this topic and say hey this is challenging but hillary you've helped us get this more in focus you can understand why victims rights groups have been really active with us in annapolis saying we want to make sure these things are, we, we want, we want them to be for sure denials. We want them to be mandatory denials that, you know, information that, that portrays or shows victims of crime or violence. Um, like that's the sort of thing that they, they basically are saying, don't leave that as a judgment call. Don't, don't make it only if it's an unwarranted release. The public doesn't need to see the, the battered face of a victim. Right. Or 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 the children and so forth. But that's the idea of if we want the state law to reflect reality more reasonably, you need to pass a bill, change what the state law says is on the yes, you must divulge this. No, you must not divulge that. And how do you deal with a request that is kind of open ended? Right. Isn't that I mean, that's part of this, too. 
I guess we should say that as we talk about the Public Information Act, we're not talking about, um, say, someone who accuses an officer of wrongdoing and is filing suit or something of that nature. The, there's a whole separate process for people to get access to body camera footage if they're filing a claim or a complaint or they're, uh, yeah, they have a lawsuit uh, or something along those lines. This is different. The Public Information Act is just one way that information can get into people's hands. This is about sharing it with the public as opposed to the affected parties, right? Absolutely. And the criminal process, the defense attorneys, the prosecutors, their access to body camera is never redacted. I mean, it's actually, in fact, most of the body camera software out there gives a clear chain of custody report and makes it, you know, crystal clear to the court and to all the parties that it isn't tampered with and that it is a accurate reflection of what was recorded. And that's so important for the criminal case and and same for civil. So that whole process is not what we're talking about. As you said, this is literally your press requests, your nosy neighbor, your, you know, non nonprofit or whomever that wants to see this body camera footage. You know, that's the group in which these exemptions to disclosure are are really thought about. You know, what should the public that isn't involved in the in the trial, isn't involved in the criminal or civil aspect, uh, what can they see? And I think that, you know, flexibility, like you said, for government is fine. But we're at the point as uh, government lawyers where it's very difficult to anticipate what's going to be captured on these body camera videos. And and what is it that we as a society want to see? And I think it's fairly clear many, many other states are struggling with this. And many states have instituted rules to help guide them about what kind of things are just not available for public consumption or alternatively, what things must definitely be available. For example, many states say, look, if if this is showing, um, you know, police brutality, if it's showing, um, you know, police misconduct of any kind, that's mm-hmm. that's a must disclose. Right. Um, you know, so the reality is that that states have approached it both from the what you're not allowed to disclose or what you must disclose. But there's a lot more guidance out there than Maryland has at the moment. Right. And, you know, you mentioned nosy neighbor. You mentioned, just you know, that is an important distinction. Um, you know, if you're filing suit and, and there's some claim, then that's a that's a separate process. But nosy neighbors, I mean, the last thing we want is for this kind of stuff to get on social media and people to be shamed. And, and that's a whole nother element that that we have to protect against. And you have to think about um, it's also important to note that going through this footage through video footage takes a lot of time. Right. An attorney needs to review every second of that footage to make sure that the kind of sensitive information we're talking about has been redacted. And for a major incident, you may review a lot of body camera footage from multiple officers, right, to comply with one request. So if you have multiple officers responding to a major incident, all of a sudden now 
you, you just multiply the amount of footage, you know, tenfold in some circumstances. And I know in Baltimore City, Hillary, I know I've heard you say that you had one request that required over thirteen hundred hours and seven hundred thousand dollars to fulfill. So that's how much money it costs the city to have attorneys go through, review the footage, redact the footage. And, and I assume that was from a major incident. But talk a little bit about that process and how that can be cumbersome. And, and you know, again, it's expensive. And, and that's a, just the reality of this conversation. Well, I think that is the reality. If we had unlimited resources and people to review the footage, that would be different. But we don't. And one of the things that enumerated exemptions in the law does is by default, it makes the job faster, quicker, easier, cheaper. Um, you know, I know that I cannot let out medical information. I don't have to review cases about it. I don't have to try to decide, well, is this person really going to be harmed by the release of this? The General Assembly has made that distinction for me, and thus the cost is is exponentially less. Um, yes, there have been extremely expensive requests for body camera and police record um, requests in the city. And part of it is because people don't necessarily want just one incident. Understandably, they want, you know, they want a whole smattering of incidents as a way to say, look, you know, this is the pattern in the practice of the police department. We're interested in what do they generally do most of the time? And so there's clearly a public desire to see not only body camera footage, but many of the police records that have to do with police discipline and I know, at least for Baltimore City and every other police department in the state whose representatives I've talked to, everybody wants that information out. Mm -hmm. We're all on that page. What we're struggling with is the stuff that you wouldn't even believe is caught in the background or is left in these records that really has nothing to do with what the government's doing. It's not a, really about the police officer. And, you know, I, I think it's it it. You know, that's the part that people are struggling with, um, even if you get really great software um, and, and it has the capability of clearly excising or blacking out the things you don't want seen. You still have to sit there, like you said, and review every second of that footage to make sure. Um, and 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 you're looking at the whole thing, foreground, background, middle ground. You know, it's a right. really time intensive process and it makes the cost go up and it's not necessarily a, a well-spent dollar because mm -hmm. if we as a society could agree on what the rules were for that background information, then we wouldn't be spending that money as a society, whether it's the requester or the government on trying to go through bit by bit. We'd have better guidance, which would be cheaper for everyone and really advance transparency because it would allow us to get more information that everyone wants to see out more expeditiously. Right. And I think, you know, one of the one of the things there is, look, we, we want to do this the right way. Right. But we're dedicating resources to things that shouldn't be released and ultimately maybe decided aren't going to be released. But I think one of the things, too, like we talk about, quote unquote, fishing expeditions, and we know these First Amendment auditors, that's a new thing, right, where they show up and they may request information or they're filming inside of an office and they're just looking to, to stir the pot in most instances. But if I walk in and say, I want all the footage 
from these officers for a week, or, or, or I can even refine it some. But still, it's a massive amount of information, and you still need to deal with that in, in some respects, right? You still need to go back and look, okay, well, how much footage is it? What do we need to do here? Like, that takes time. So trying to prevent these kind of fishing expeditions that really are just meant to, to, to portray someone in a negative light, there's nothing specific that someone's looking for. There's no specific instance. Like, we know that that happens, and we know that that happens uh, in, a lot, in a lot of cases, and not just in Baltimore, across the state, this is on the uprise, and people are just looking to to, to, to get this stuff out there, and, and whatever their intentions are, they can come in and ask for a lot of footage, and you still need to deal with that. So I think it makes a lot of sense when you say, look, if we had more clear laws, if, if the laws were written more clearly, and we had a better indication of what we can and can't do, and there wasn't so much ambiguity, it would save time, it would save money, and these are public dollars that, that are, you know, being expended to go through this. And, and again, in, in some instances, for no reason, because that stuff doesn't ended up getting released or whatever the case may be. But these are public dollars that could benefit the public in better ways than, you know, throwing it away because you have to deal with some fishing expedition. Is that am I on point there in terms of yeah. what the issue there is? Yeah, but, you know, if taking the the other side, I am much better off with a massive fishing fishing expedition, as you called it, if I know which things need to be redacted out and which ones don't. Even that quote-unquote fishing expedition, which, you know, to, to us seems, you know, that perhaps there's no good reason for it. And to media or, you know, government watchdogs, they think it's a really great idea to ask, regardless of that, no matter where you stand on that spectrum. Better and more succinct laws that clearly state what can't be disclosed in these body cameras will make everything cheaper, whether you've got a fishing expedition or not. And I think what is very troubling is, look, you know, we're a government. We can't just decide as as perhaps a private party to go spend money in a certain way without oversight or, you know, uh, move money from one place to another when a massive record request comes in if an agency hasn't budgeted for the time for attorney review and, you know, government employee or outside contractor review, they're stuck with a massive amount of work that they didn't plan for and they perhaps haven't budgeted for. You simply can't just go, oh, okay, well, it turns out, you know, I'd like to take this money where we were going to buy pens and pencils and we'll just redirect it over here. Most governments don't have that flexibility and for good reason. You know, people are supposed to decide in advance how the money's going to be spent and on what. And so for certainly in Baltimore City, we've had many instances where we have to employ outside counsel and we get an outside counsel bill. And the question is, you know, who's going to pay for that? The public, if we eat some of that cost or the private requester? And, and the answer is it'd be great if the bill wasn't that high, regardless of who pays for it. If we could have mm -hmm. a much faster and more streamlined process, then, you know, the cost comes down no matter who pays for it. Yeah, in in, in an economics class, um, I, I, I used to teach one and we talked about. Uh, we've talked about transaction costs being a part, you know, sort of why the world doesn't run as smoothly as in these super simplified economic models because of things like transaction costs. And it's not sexy and exciting, but it does take skillful human beings to go frame by frame through video footage 
to make these judgments. And like you said, ha- having clear rules for balls and strikes benefits both the requesters and the custodians by probably, you know, limiting the amount of judgment and the amount of decision-making that has to go into, here's what we can offer you. It's going to have to, you know, we're going to have to go through this redaction process. It's going to be difficult, but at least we know what the rules of the game are there. So, I mean, that's that really gets us to what we're trying to do with the bill that we plan to once again put before the General Assembly is try and firm up that a clear list of things that should not be disclosed if they happen to be contained in body camera footage. But then we continue to preserve your right to get the footage if you're if you're an affected party, if you're you or your family member are in, you know, affected by the incident that the footage is of and so forth. We want to make sure that those people have they retain their access. This this doesn't shortchange your ability to get what you need to pursue litigation or a court case. It's not, it doesn't affect the discovery process. All those those sorts of things are unaffected. This is just in the generic clearer rules on what stuff ought not be shared, more clear guidance to the custodians, and try and bring down these transaction costs, particularly when there are broad and wide requests. Absolutely. And I think you've really hit the nail on the head on transaction costs. A lawyer's time is more expensive than a paralegal, for example. And even if I had to contract out a massive body camera review to an outside counsel, I'm going to get a much lower bill if there isn't legal analysis that's needed. And instead, someone's watching footage and literally saying, "Okay, this shows a dead body. I don't have to make a judgment call. Dead body redacted. Or this shows someone's home. Black out the background. Or this, you know, this is something of a sexual nature. This is what gets redacted. Or here are the minors. This is what gets redacted. That is a direct reduction of cost if we can all Mm -hmm. agree on those kinds of things that we are not interested in disclosing publicly. Again, like you said, they go into the criminal world or the civil lawsuit world without redaction. But for public consumption, we're just going to all agree nothing comes from seeing a nude body or seeing the inside of a school or all sorts of other exemptions that other states have adopted that really help determine what should and shouldn't be seen. And, you know, it's worth repeating that in 2015, there was a special commission to amend the Public Information Act, and their recommendation was a statute to determine what parts of these videos should be released. And they were specifically concerned about victims of violent crimes and domestic abuse and Mm -hmm. making sure that there wasn't any government discretion so that you're not in a world where um, there's any choice. And really, the government doesn't want a choice on that. And I'm not sure the public does either. I don't think you want us spending our time going through and trying to determine in each instance, is there going to be a public um, problem? Is it in the public interest to release we're, we're sort of begging for General Assembly guidance, and, and really that was what best practices suggested in 2015. 
It's a fascinating issue, and obviously it's made it to, you know, Mako's walking around sheet is one of our top four initiatives. We know, Hillary, too, that storage can be very expensive. Um, you know, storing all this footage, this is massive amounts of data, and that, that has to, to stay on servers somewhere, and you have to protect it against, you know, cyber attacks and whatnot. So that's another issue, too, that I think we, we can talk about another time. But certainly there are a lot of moving parts here. Technology is advancing, but at the end of the day, the, the 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 ambiguity here creates a lot of problems for many different reasons. I think this has been great, Hillary. And again, I think you are the absolutely the right person to, to help us walk through this. And it, it's illuminating in many ways. And I think we're able to understand it more clearly and able to explain to our audience more clearly. Is there anything that we haven't gotten into, Hillary, that is important to you? I mean, you've seen iterations of this bill for years. You've been at the testimony table. You've heard the opponents. What what is the, the the big takeaway that you want our podcast listeners in in county land and elsewhere to to be the you had to know this one fact or or something that we've missed here that really needs to be said before we let you go? Yeah, I would just say that we faced uh, Mako has faced and certainly me as as testifying on behalf of the city and for Mako, we faced a lot of pushback from groups like ACLU saying you know these kinds of laws aren't needed because you can always protect the unwarranted invasion of personal privacy in these investigatory records. And I think that really um, is a reductionist argument. It simplifies too much what's required because it's been clear from Maryland's highest court that there is no definition for unwarranted invasion of privacy um, in the law. And that leaves lawyers looking at the Constitution, cases on Maryland's Constitution, on generally the right to privacy. And it's a very difficult world um, when you're stuck going through those cases. And I think that's why most states have decided not to do that. They've decided instead to come up with a list of things that we have decided is just not what uh, we expect the public to view. In these body cameras. And I think, you know, Maryland has um, sort of lagged on this for five, six, seven years now um, because, you know, it really should be something that our elected officials decide, you know, what kinds of what kinds of things are just too much of an invasion of privacy on these videos. And, um, you know, I think it's 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 not fair to say, well, the law gives the government the option. Yes, we, we acknowledge that we have the option to protect those things now, but but we want the guidance. Um, we want that guidance so that we're not sort of trolling around in case law, but we're really releasing only what the public has decided is really in the public interest. Yeah, I think that's well put. And look, this is practical. This is not about trying to withhold footage that should be released to the public or to anyone else. It's it, it's not about that. It's about trying to refine this process and make it better, make it easier so that everybody can be on the same page. And, and there aren't these tough calls that need to be made, especially because Maryland law holds individuals responsible. So, you know, certainly I think this makes a lot of sense. We're going to push hard in the next session of the General Assembly. I'm sure, Hillary, you will be down in Annapolis talking about this bill. And we certainly appreciate that. But this was great. We really appreciate your time today. And thank you for taking it. And I, I'm hopeful that we get this around and, and everybody can listen and understand what this initiative is all about and what it's not about. And thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. And I think just to that point, you know, all of the bills that MAKO's put forward in the past have been clear that what we want to see is police misconduct, 
you know, arrests, detentions, seizures, that kind of thing. So just as much as we've talked about what not to see, we've certainly said we're all on board for transparency and um, and what we do want to see. But having a clear yes and no column essentially in the law is going to really reduce the costs that uh, this places on local governments and also the stress on on each individual record custodian to try to evaluate all these different scenarios. And, of course, protect all that sensitive information. And that's why we've had a coalition of victims' right groups with us at the stand testifying in support of this bill. And I think all these things are needed and necessary. So, Hillary, again, thank you so much. If you enjoyed the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, on the Conduit Street blog. But for Hillary Rowley and Michael Sanderson, for our producer, Victoria Moss, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon. 